I'd love to have you take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians chapter 3, where today in our study of this book, we will find ourselves in a larger section looking at verses 15 to 29. Galatians three fifteen to 29, study notes I know will be a help to you as we move along. Back in the day when I was in high school, uh, along with many of you, I took a whole number of shop classes. Remember those? I realize today those have gone the way of, you know, the Model T. But back in the day, I took uh, a whole variety of those. One of those in high school was auto shop. So I had my coveralls, and uh, I learned several important skills, life skills, like how to take apart a manual transmission and put it back together to where it works. I did that. Never used that skill since. Uh, Why would I do that? Uh, I also learned how to trace the electrical system through a car from the battery and all around and get everything in the right place. I've never used that either. One thing I learned in auto shop, though, that was very, very important is I learned uh, not ever to become an auto mechanic. Uh, Not because I couldn't figure it out. I did, and I could. I just didn't like it. It didn't make my heart sing. You know how that is. Some of you now... Uh, know how to do that and love it. Um, But today, we're going to look under the hood, or the bonnet, if you're from another country, of the gospel. The text in front of us is like lifting the hood. And if, if right away you say, well, no, why would I want to do that? I know, bear with me. All right, we're looking under the hood, and we're going to look at several details that, that lie behind gospel doctrine, and take you back a little bit into some history. I know, since you love history so much, like I do, uh, we'll touch on a couple of things there. But I want to just tell you ahead of time, due to the, the, the size of the text and the complexity of the details, this morning really needs to be a partnership. Meaning, on the study notes, you'll see several places where I have referenced other texts, specifically Book of Romans, Romans 4, 5, uh, 6, 7. Those chapters in particular talk about the same topic at greater length, okay? Galatians, probably the first book Paul wrote, he he gives you the expanded version later on, well beyond what we can do today. So I'm going to direct you there. That's why it's a partnership. Between here and your, your community group, you might take a look at the references I give you in Romans that'll kind of help you here a little bit. So my focus this morning, my end of the partnership, is going to be to grab a couple of highlights that I think are representative of of all the other elements in the text. You'll see how that goes this morning, but it's a, a sizable, a sizable chunk. But I want to pray for us after I say this. My title today, The Kindness of God in Giving the Law, uh, that's specifically what's in front of us today. The Old Testament law that we're, we would be so bad at keeping that, it's, as we've seen, it's a really good thing. It's not required to get you into heaven because if that was the case, none of us are going because we're not real good rule keepers. But, but the first part of that phrase, the kindness of God, the kindness of God, I just want you to reflect on that with me throughout the morning, again at the end. Here's what I mean. You may not today have come wondering about the kindness of God in giving the law. You might have come wondering about the kindness of God in giving you the other stuff in your life. Challenges and problems and difficulties and heartaches. Maybe you've come today wondering about the kindness of God. And may I just say, as we'll see on this specific topic, 
I just want you to be reminded today that as God cares for us, he is never less than kind. He is kind, even when there's a sting to it. Okay? So just, just reflect on that a bit. The kindness of God. The kindness of God. It's reflected in his giving of the law. It's reflected in how he leads and cares for you too. Sometimes in his kindness, there's a sting. And it's good of him to do. I want to pray for us and we'll jump right into the text. A lot of things ahead of us here. But pray with me please as we get going here. Father, we have a lot on our, our plates this morning uh, theologically. But our Father, I, I thank you for each person who's come in today all kinds of different circumstances and backgrounds and uh, activities of the week and, and burdens of the heart. And how we thank you that you address us in the word of God. You give us details maybe that we hadn't wondered about, but you tell us because we need to hear it. And you also tell us what you're like so that as we wrestle with the struggles of life that we each must face, that we know what you're like, even if we don't understand why. We can know in it all that you're still good. So, Father, just use your word today, I pray, by the Spirit of God. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. On your study notes, of course, uh, elements of review are there. Uh, they'll take you back to where we've been the last few weeks and what the book of Galatians is all about. Today's text, a little paragraph talking about uh, the, the, the specific portion in front of us, verses 15 through 29. And... Uh, really, I, the latter second uh, sentence there, uh, today's section, Paul takes a journey back, it, it highlights the main issue, and that is, Paul's been building an argument in, in Galatians 3, specifically, that keeping the Old Testament law is not a requirement to get you into heaven. There were those teaching that in Paul's day, and he is fighting against it and saying, no, um, it's by grace alone, it's Christ, it's Christ who paid your price on the cross. Keeping the law? No, that's not required to get you into heaven. So then the logical question then, well, then why did God do that? Why did he give us the Old Testament law if, if it's not a means to get you into heaven? Why would you do that? It's like giving somebody a shot with nothing in it. Why would you do that? Uh, so he's going to answer that. Why did God give us the law? The, the law? So I want to read this text in its entirety and then uh, I'm going to deal with it in two different categories. And uh, away we go. So hear the word of God then. Galatians 3, verses 15 through 29. All right, here we go. God's word says this. To give a human example, and of course he's looking back at that point. To give a human example of what he just talked about. He says, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham... And to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Okay, there's a good, tightly argued paragraph. We'll talk about it. So then the question, verse 19. Well, why then the law? Here's his answer. 
we'll see two things. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, Moses, that is. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Question then, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? He says, certainly not. Absolutely not. No way. Strong, emphatic phrase. If the law had been given that would give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. In other words, if, if you could keep it, not a problem. Jesus wouldn't have had to come. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, that would be Jesus, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. That'd be when Christ came. So then, the law was our guardian, our schoolmaster, and, uh, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that lo- faith has come, that's Christ, we're no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you're all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Oh my goodness, not a problem, right? Uh, Man, okay, so what are we talking about today? Well, first of all, verses 18 through, or 15 through 18, this is a bit of a history lesson. And of course, the people in the audience who are hearing this or reading this, most likely hearing it, of course, as it was read to them in a church setting, those of a Jewish background would quickly have figured this out. And here's what they would have quickly remembered. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, 1, 2, and 3, what we call the Abrahamic covenant. God made some promises to Abraham. Uh, fall into three categories, land, descendants, or descendant in particular in the mind of God, as Paul's going to argue here, land, descendant, blessing. Specifically, in you, God said to Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, Paul has just referenced this in chapter 3, verse 8. He calls that the gospel, interestingly, the gospel, because what he's telling us is in the mind of God, when he said, Genesis 12, 3, he was thinking the whole time, Christ. When God said to Abraham, in you all the families of the earth will be blessed, Abraham might have heard, well, that's nice. We'll be good for the world. In the mind of God, he was thinking, I'm going to send a savior through you. His name is Jesus. That's what was in the mind of God. That's what Paul is pointing out here. Now, stay with the argument. God made promises to Abraham, Genesis 15. God alone put his name on the, on the sheet, so to speak. That was that, that amazing ceremony that's described in Genesis 3, separating of the animals, God walking between the unilateral covenant, not two parties, one. God made the promise to Abraham, done deal. Okay? Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. So he, he was right with God, by faith. Paul's making a deal of this. When did the law come? Mosaic law? 430 years later. And Paul's making a point of this. He's saying the law that came later didn't wipe out what God did with Abraham. 
He's giving us a history lesson. Abraham was declared right with God by grace through faith, by trusting the promise of God. And he says God did not give the law to wipe that out. That's what this paragraph is about. Okay? Once a covenant is made, you don't just mess with it like that. No, that's not what the law was about. So look at your notes. I'm going to touch on just a couple of things that I think would be helpful to us. Uh, The law, that's a term that we use, uh, referring mainly to the Mosaic law. Now, my second bullet point, I want to to separate this just a little bit. I mentioned last week as a teaser, I suppose, that when we read the term the law and we think about the Old Testament, that term is used in different ways. And to help me here, I'm going to read a few lines from this cool book. Uh, We introduced it to you several years ago when we preached the Ten Commandments. This is a book called Written in Stone by Philip Graham Ryken, uh, subtitled The Ten Commandments. What's it say? The Ten Commandments in Today's Moral Crisis. Interesting. Good book on the Ten Commandments. But he takes the time here to say, when we talk about the law, you could, if it's helpful, divide it into three categories. And you need to know this, my friends. You need to know this because you live in a world where people talk about the Bible And they say things like, well, you guys kind of ignore a lot of the Old Testament anyway. And many Christians have no answer as to what they're talking about. So you kind of go, yeah, 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 well, that was old or something. Here's a better answer, okay? Now, Riken points out, when we talk about the law, uh, we're talking really about three different categories you can summarize in these areas. and I put them here on your study notes, the ceremonial law, the civil law, the moral law. Let me say a word about each, okay? In the Old Testament, they're kind of mingled together, but you need to know the differences. The moral law, summarized in the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God, listen carefully, has never changed, never will change, and applies to all people at all times for all places until the end of time. The moral law of God summarized in the Ten Commandments. It will never be okay for you to just randomly kill people. Okay? There's never going to be a time you say, well, that law expired. Well, no. And the rest. So the moral law of God that, that, that discloses his heart about how people should treat each other has never changed, will never change, never expires. Okay? The civil law. And again, I'm reading sentences here from Reich, and I always try to give credit So if something is said very profoundly, you are aware it was not me. The civil law, he says, consists of the laws that governed Israel as a nation under God. Israel was kind of a nation state. Are we Israel? Well, no. And there were certain laws given that were about how Israel should function as a state living under the hand of God. We're not that. So civil law, things, uh, guidelines for waging war, restrictions on land use, regulations of debt, penalties for violations of Israel's legal code. Uh, that was specifically for Israel as a nation. Okay? Third, ceremonial law. This would include a whole lot of things like celebrating various festivals, uh, laws on food, the food laws, clean and unclean foods. Uh, how come we can eat clam chowder these days? Amen. Well, uh, here's why. Instructions for ritual purity, guidelines for the conduct of priests. And his point is this. The ceremonial law, I'm reading Riken, is no longer in effect. That's because its regulations all pointed us to Jesus. Okay? So those elements in the ceremonial law were looking ahead to a coming Savior 
Christ. And when he came, guess what? He fulfilled all of that. So unclean and unclean, where's your cleanliness now? Is it in keeping rules? No, it's in Christ. You're clean before a holy God because of Jesus. It's not about eating clam chowder or lobster or whatever else. That's not it anymore. Christ is the one who makes you clean. All of those rules pointed ahead to a coming Savior. Then he came, faith came, and those rules were completed. They were completed, fulfilled. So why don't we keep those? Because they were fulfilled in the person of Jesus. It's kind of like getting married, to use a bad example of this. The way we do this in our culture is people are engaged for a while, and then you get married. When you're married, you are no longer engaged. It's done. So you wouldn't say, well, I thought we were engaged. It's like, no, no, that was then. Now we're married. Different, you know, it's different now, okay? Similarly, those rules in the Old Testament that pointed the way to Christ were fulfilled when Jesus came. So that's the answer when people say, how come you guys just skip some of that? You can now say, well, listen carefully. The moral law of God has never changed. That still applies to you today. The civil law was Israel as a nation, and we're not Israel as a nation. The ceremonial law pointed the way to Christ. He's come. He's come. He's fulfilled all of that. So now we live focused on Christ, not on keeping those rules that prepared the way. You should think about that and be prepared to say that in your own words. Okay? It helps you to think through Old Testament. Now, Paul makes a deal here about offspring, offspring. The promises were made to Abraham, he says in verse 16, as you have that open in front of you, and to his offspring. Paul's making a, a point of saying, in the mind of God, that whole time there's discussion in the, in the academy, so to speak, about grammar and singular and plural and so on. Suffice it to say, in the mind of God, when he was talking about, I'm going to bless the world through your, your offspring, he had, listen, he had Christ in mind the whole time. Genesis 12, 3, in you, in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. God, as he said that, had Christ in mind the whole time. Abraham did not know it. God did. He said, just wait. Just wait till you see how I'm going to bless the world through you. A Savior's going to come. His name's going to be Jesus. That's the point he's making. Now, 430 years later, there you go. He just says, Abraham was made right with God by faith, by grace through faith, the law didn't wipe that out. Now, that leads you to verse 19, uh, the fill-ins. Uh, the law did not annul or add to the promise of God. I hope you got that. Cheat and look at the end if you need the fill-ins. So that leads you to verse 19. So then why did God give the law? If it wasn't to give us rules to help us earn God's favor and get us into his heaven, then why did God give us the law? Because that was a lot of work, right? Just if it doesn't help you get into heaven. Well, he's going to give two reasons. Uh, some would say three or four, but I've summarized it as two. Uh, and of course, I'm skipping over some things that I think you should look at in the text and refer to in Romans as well. But verse 19 then, he says, why then the law? Ask the question you're asking. He says, well, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And again, he's focusing that on Christ. Now, transgressions, and if you look at your study notes, I'm, I'm going two directions on this. And I, I lean on Romans to help me amplify that a bit. That was Paul's commentary, so to speak, written later. Two elements. The law shows us what God is like. It shows us the holiness of God. 
You're, as a Christian today, you should still read and study the Old Testament. I'm, I'm not interested at all in any theology that says, you know, we're New Testament believers to study the, the, New, the New Testament. You don't need the Old Testament. Nonsense. You do too. It's three quarters of your Bible. You need to read and study your Old Testament. Understand the big picture story. Understand progress of revelation. Understand how it fits together. But read and study the Old Testament for goodness sake. And as you read the law, you read Leviticus, for goodness sakes. And don't get lost in the weeds. Because if you, if you read Leviticus, you'll see the holiness of God. How dare you just waltz right into his presence? Right? Wow, who are you? Just, just walk in? Nadab and Abihu learned a big lesson about that. You just waltz in there like you own the place. No, God is a holy God. Be careful how you approach him. The Old Testament law, people said, man, I've got to do all these sacrifices and things. Yes. And today we look at that and say, and Christ has opened the door. Christ's blood paid my price. I can approach a holy God, not because I'm so smart. I can approach a holy God because of Jesus. So study the Old Testament. The law shows us what a holy God is like, shows us what, what he's like, and it shows us, the other part of that, our utter inability to perfectly keep God's rules. To read the Old Testament law, to read those thou shalt and thou shalt nots, the details, my goodness sakes, I don't know if you've ever read it and been overwhelmed and thought, man, oh man, am I grateful I don't have to think about three lambs for that and two pigeons for that and more blood has to be shed because I did what? Man, I, 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 how, how could I keep all those rules? And listen, that's part of the point is you couldn't. Can I tell you another secret? Not only could you and I not keep all the details of the law, but in our heart of hearts, I'm not so sure we really want to. Huh? Wow. The law shows us how holy God is and how far apart we are from him. That's part of the purpose of the law. That's why you should read it. Because it leaves you saying, oh God, if you don't help me, I am toast in a theological sense. And you'd be right. And it makes you cry out for a Savior, Jesus. That'd be the idea. Now, the law I put in front of you here shows us the depth and extent of our depravity. Yes, it does. And I turn you to the book of Romans to look at these things. Please go there. I mentioned a number of things as I read the text. Before faith came, it's talking about Christ. Verse 23 is where I'm at. We're held captive under the law, imprisoned. We were stuck until the coming faith would be revealed, until Christ would come. So then, he says, and here's my second element. First of all, the law was given because of transgressions. Second, it would be here, the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law leads us to Christ. The law points to the holiness of God in our sin. And secondly, it leads us to Christ as the answer to our depravity and our sinfulness. The interesting, it says our, the law was our guardian or a, a schoolmaster. I'm not sure what translation you have in front of you. Pedagogue is another term that's used. Um, there's a, there's a, a cultural um, uh, a setting that made sense to the listener, to the, to the reader here, okay, that doesn't make sense to us. Uh, in, in the day, back in Paul's day, he was referring to a specific role that was often filled by a servant or a slave or somebody else who would try this, kind of like be a nanny, but not a nice one, kind of like a mean one. You know what I mean by this? Not the nice baby, like Mary Poppins, who takes you on field trips. This would be one, the one who shows up with duct tape and a fly swatter and makes you behave, okay? 
That was the idea. So if you had young kids, if you could afford it, you hired one of these. And said, it's your job to get them to school and back, to make them do their lessons, make them do their homework. That's not my job. That is your job, buddy. Okay? And so because it was your job, you could be a little testy about that. You were not paid big money to love the kids. You were paid big money to make them behave. So that's what you did. So uh, it would be a strict disciplinarian. Uh, that's the little fill-in there. The guardian was a strict disciplinarian put in charge of young children to make sure they behaved and did their lessons. Um, I've seen people use an analogy here of a babysitter. It's like, yeah, but some babysitters are nicer than that. This person had their thumb on you. And that's Paul's point. The law was that to lead you to Christ. Interesting, culturally, of course, there came a day when you graduated from underneath Mary Poppins or whoever that was. You graduated by age. You aged out. And suddenly you were now an adult, and you didn't have to follow that pedagogue anymore. The analogy stands. The law was our tutor to lead us to Christ. Then Christ came, and you said, so Christ was the point the whole time. So Christ is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. It's Christ. You mean to tell me Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe? Yes. You mean that not only do I, can I not obey all the law, I don't have to try to earn God's favor like that. Christ fulfilled it all. Is that what you mean? Yes, that is what I mean. And so this text just comes to life to the person hearing it and reading it and thinking, thinking Christ. Now, several other details I want to I touch on here. Before faith came, yes, all of that. Now that faith has come, it's all referring to the coming of Christ. Now, he's looking at the result then. Now that faith has come, you're no longer under a guardian. I read verse 25 and on. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many as were baptized into Christ Jesus. I'm going to go back to verse 26 in a minute, but stay with me. For as many of us, many of you as were baptized into Christ have, been, have put on Christ. So there's neither Jew or Greek, slave or free, male, female. You're all one in Christ. If you're Christ, you belong, you're Abraham's offspring. Because Abraham believed God, you believed God. It was all counted for righteousness. Two things I want to say here, represented on your sheet. So first, the easy one. All right? When you trust Christ as your Savior, you become a child of God, regardless of who you are. There's not stratification in the body of Christ. Uh, This is big news in this day when, depending on your economic or your social or your cultural status, your ethnic status, you could be considered favored. Jews considered themselves ahead of Gentiles. Men considered themselves ahead of women, and on and on down. Okay? That's the culture in which it's written. So Paul is giving big news to say, guess what? To get into the family of God, none of that matters anymore. Everybody comes the same way, whoever you are. You come to Christ, you come to the cross, you trust Christ as your Savior, and nobody gets in ahead of the other people. So this is big news. Now, this text is also a big part of a discussion today in the Christian realm. And I can, I'm only going to deal with it in summary form, but I'll try to be very clear. Some have used this text to say, well, that removes all gender roles then, doesn't it? And I want to be very, very clear in saying, that's not Paul's point. You're missing the point. You're using it for today's cultural purposes if you try to make it say that. That isn't what, how do I know, how do I know that? On what basis do I say it? Well, first, this is the first book Paul wrote. He writes Ephesians later on, and he talks about marriage in Ephesians 5, and he talks about the role of men and women. 
So here he's talking about equality to get into God's heaven, but he does not skip gender roles. 1 Timothy 2 addresses some things about gender roles in the church and roles we play in the church. Paul wrote that after he wrote this. So if he meant here to say everything about gender is gone, then he probably didn't speak well in Ephesians 5 nor in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Now, I want, to, I want to say a word, and I'm going to read a word about verse 26, and this, this will help you, I think, a little bit. Uh, some of our modern translations reword verse 26, which says, For in Christ Jesus you were all sons of God through faith. And to be fair, there are translation issues that where evening the genders make sense. Let me give you an example. Uh, when, when there's a greeting given and it says, Brothers, Adelphoi, if you're into Greek. To say, well, that means brothers and sisters because it's a greeting to everyone, that's fair. No quarrel. But I want you to hear Tim Keller on this one. There are nuances. This is going to be his point. There are nuances here, though, that if you even out and skip all gender in the Bible, you're going to miss some stuff. I'm sorry, but you're going to miss some things. So listen carefully and take this under advisement if these are issues that are a big deal to you. And they should be on some level. So listen to Tim Keller. This is in one of the books I recommended to you at the beginning of this study called Galatians for You. It's a good, concise treatment of this book. Very, very accessible. He says, Many take offense at using the masculine word sons to refer to all Christians, male and female. Some would prefer to translate verse 26, you are all children of God. The NIV 2011 does that, as does the New Living Translation. Uh, It's following the political thing. But he says this, but if you're too quick to correct the biblical language, we miss the revolutionary and radically egalitarian nature of what Paul is saying. Here's why. In most ancient cultures, daughters could not inherit property. Therefore, son meant legal heir, which was a status forbidden to women. So when the gospel tells us we're all sons of God in Christ, it's telling us we're all heirs. Similarly, the Bible describes all Christians together, including men, as the bride of Christ, which is something people rarely argue about today. But men, we're part of the bride of Christ. So there you go. He says, God is even-handed in his gender-specific metaphors. Men are part of his son's bride, and women are his sons, his heirs. That puts them on an equal status to sons. It's about equal status, okay? A higher status than if you just said children. So it's a better deal if it's translated sons than if it's translated children. You're picking that up? So it matters here. So don't chafe at verse 26 and say it means all children. No, it doesn't. It meant heirs. So it said sons. And it was trying to elevate everybody to a higher status. So please go there to the higher status. Don't don't miss it. He says men are part of his son's bride. Women are, are his sons, his heirs. If we don't let Paul call Christian women sons of God, we miss how radical and wonderful a claim this is. Uh, He will say elsewhere, the gospel radically elevates women. Does not remove all gender roles. There's a whole other discussion of that that I'd be happy to engage. But this text properly is translated, we're all sons of God, and that should make everybody, regardless of whether you're a man or a woman, say, thank you, Lord, 
for elevating me like that to be a full heir of all of God's heaven. Wow, it's big stuff. Now, we're going to remember Christ in communion today. I mentioned at the beginning the kindness of God in giving the law, and I was going to give two reasons why he was kind. Uh, We've seen that. But I mentioned the thing about kindness, the kindness of God. I don't know if you walked in here today with with burdens of life and struggles of the heart and all manner of other things going on in your life. Uh, Coming to Christ and remembering Christ in communion should remind you of the kindness of God to you. He was kind in giving the law. He's kind in allowing things into our lives, even things that hurt. He's kind. I'm going to refer to Titus 3 in a couple moments as we receive communion. You could go there ahead of me. But I want to pray. Those who are going to serve us can come on down, and I'll say a few words of explanation about how we serve communion here. But I want to pray for us, if you would join me in that. Father, I thank you for this text. Yes, it has some complexities to it, and it prompts discussion for all kinds of things. But most importantly, you tell us that you're kind in giving us the law, the law that breaks us, that shows us our inability to be perfect, a law that ultimately drives us to Christ. Wretched, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank you for giving us the law. Hard, hard to hear, hard to read. All of it points us to a Savior. Thank you for this today. Thank you for Jesus dying in our place. Help us in these moments to focus on him. In Jesus' name, amen.